When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com culture. And by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com US. And buy Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Wacka Guest Edition. It's Wednesday, June 3rd, 2015. On today's show, something a little different. We're missing Julia Turner, but we've gone to a deep bench. So we're first joined by Emily Bazelon, who I'm told does a show called Political Gap Fest, to discuss academic freedom, gender equality, and campus politics. And then Slate writer Rebecca Onion discusses her excellent essay on the bogus concept of generations. And finally, Carl Wilson best known as my Toronto drinking buddy, but also the Slate music critic, joins us to discuss Jim O'Rourke and the fate of the singer-songwriter. Joining me today is uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. We're kind of going it alone here, though. We have some backup. I've called for backup. I have to say, I mean, you're the host of the show, but without Julia, don't you feel like our skiff is drifting in some wayward direction? Are we going to get into the Bermuda Triangle here at some point? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I just think the show, no need for metaphors. The show will just suck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just lay it out there. <laughs> All right, Dana, before we really dig in, though, um, we do have some business, correct? Yes. Well, first of all, I should say that in our Slate Plus segment today, uh, I'm going to talk to Rebecca Onion, who's coming on, as you just said, to um, to speak with us about her article on generationality and the bogusness of that concept, but who also just finished doing this huge Slate Academy project, which is sort of a new thing for Slate, basically almost an online course for Slate Plus members, which this very first one is on the history of slavery. So she's going to join me for our Slate Plus segment to delve into specifically one of those podcasts and the project in general. And we also just wanted to mention that Mom and Dad are Fighting, which is Slate's great parenting podcast with Dan Coyce and Allison Benedict, is coming to North Carolina live. So if you live near the Triangle region, Durham, Chapel Hill, all that wonderful part of North Carolina, I love that region of the country, you can come and watch a live taping of Mom and Dad are Fighting. It's happening Sunday, June the 7th at Motorco in Durham, North Carolina. 
And Dan and Allison will have a special guest that evening, Mac McCon of the band Superchunk, which is a great guest to have on a parenting podcast. He'll talk about indie rock dadhood, his new solo album, Non-Believers, and his parenting triumphs and fails, which is sort of Allison and Dan's equivalent of our endorsements. They talk about what went well and didn't go well in their parenting for that week. And Mac McCon will also perform live at the show. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you get a 30% discount on your ticket purchase. But either way, you can go see Mom and Dad are Fighting at Motor Co. in Durham, North Carolina, this Sunday, June the 7th. If you're interested in tickets, go to slate.com slash mom and dad live. All right. Thanks, Dana. Let's uh, let's dig in. Let's move on. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, and she's also the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. She's co-panelist for something called the Political Gap Fest. Never heard of it. Emily, welcome to the show. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. I listen to you guys every week and argue with you in my head. So I'm so thrilled to be here to do it in person. I was just doing that yesterday with you guys. I actually made a verbal point in the street that I wanted one of you to make in some segment. Not, not to dwell on this, Emily, but you plural or you singular? Oh, you plural, you plural. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. <laughs> all right. Well, Emily, you asked a very trenchant question in the Times Magazine piece that came out last Sunday. It's in the title of the piece, Have We Learned Anything from the Columbia Rape Case? We've asked you on today to answer a similar question about the Laura Kipnis episode at Northwestern University. Quickly to review, Laura Kipnis, who's a professor of media studies at Northwestern, wrote an essay for the Chronicle of Higher Education about the power dynamics between students and professors. Within that argument, she did suggest that maybe a couple of specific cases of sexual misconduct at Northwestern were part of a pattern of overblown melodramatics concerning sex and trauma. As a result of that essay, Title IX charges were brought against Kipnis. The essay, some people believed, had a chilling effect on students' ability to report sexual misconduct and might even be considered retaliatory. Kipnis has been, we should say, cleared of any wrongdoing in the two Title IX actions brought against her. Nonetheless, it raises questions about free speech and gender equality. What do you make of these cases? this Title IX investigation for an essay she wrote in the Chronicle of Higher Ed that was like speech that in any other venue would be seen as lawful speech. And she didn't have any supervisory or professional authority over the students whose cases she referred to. She didn't name them. And so to me, this is a kind of wild misuse of Title IX. And Title IX is a federal law that has been getting so much attention lately in campus sexual assault and harassment cases because in the last four years, the Obama administration has been pushing universities to do more to respond to these kinds of complaints from students. And there's a really good reason for that, right? I mean, historically, women have reported sexual assault and harassment and at, on campus, and it's been essentially swept under the rug. Not always at every school, but there was certainly a pattern of that, one that worried me among lots of other people. The question we're now facing is a different one. It's whether in particular instances, the pendulum has swung too far, and Title IX is being interpreted way too broadly. Maybe that's the government's fault. Maybe in this case, it's Northwestern's fault. But to me, when you read Laura Kipnis's current essay in the Chronicle of Higher Ed about this experience of an investigation she went through, it just seems clear that the government needs to say to schools, hey, every student complaint of retaliation is not something that you have to take super seriously and hire an outside law firm to investigate and do some like big thorough workup of. There are some complaints that are just because someone says it's retaliation doesn't mean that it is. It's just too broad a definition of retaliation. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, okay, 
okay, is this like one, you know, bad example of a university kind of going too far towards some kind of, you know, overprotective, over conciliatory attitude towards students who are essentially using the law as a weapon against a faculty member who is just exercising her free speech? Or is there this broader pattern here of misuses of Title IX? And I am not sure what the answer to that question is, but this case really worries me as an example of the law just going too far. I'm fundamentally concerned about this as a feminist who wants women to have recourse on campus to the remedies in Title IX for sexual assault and harassment. And I'm afraid that if we don't rein in the excesses of the law, that, that you know, people are going to lose this entirely because this all comes from an order from this one agency in the federal government, the Office of Civil Rights. And the next president or this president could just decide to reverse that order if it's seen as kind of going out of control. Yeah. And I think my impression reading the second essay by Laura Kipnis in which she describes and summarizes the whole investigative process, which, by the way, is now over and she's been cleared of all these charges. But there, I mean, whether or not you even believed that she had made a mistake in writing that first essay, which is extremely polemical. And I can see how it might feel as if it was sort of a brief on behalf of this Professor Ludlow with these um, accusations against him. However you feel about the content of that first essay, I feel like the descriptions of the non-transparency of the process she went through are, are fairly creepy. I mean, it's, it really does feel, it feels very um, sort of dark courts, McCarthy sort of territory. The fact that she wasn't allowed to know the charges until she sat down in a room with her accusers. She wasn't allowed to have a lawyer. She could have an accompanying buddy from the campus system. But then the person that she brought was later thrown out because that person had dared to speak publicly. So it all seemed very cloaked in secrecy in a way that, as you say, Emily, it made campus policy seem like a separate zone from the actual civil rights of the person at stake. Right, right. I mean, look, the fundamental purpose of Title IX is to make sure that everybody has equal access to education. And if you have sexual assault unaddressed on campus, that can be a barrier to education. And the government is treating it as a civil rights violation. That's the purpose here. You know, we can debate whether schools can do all this effectively, but certainly that principle is one I support. And I imagine you guys probably do too. But that doesn't mean the tactics are all justified. And I'm glad that you pointed to the secrecy, and this does actually connect with the piece I wrote over the weekend about Columbia. You know, the secrecy of these processes is really imposing a cost, and I think significantly lowering public confidence, sometimes for good reason, in what's actually going on behind closed doors. There are reasons for that secrecy. You know, we have a federal law that protects students' privacy, and there are incredibly private disputes and issues at stake in these cases, but there just has to be some way of not having what just sounds like this Kafka-esque sort of proceeding where you're being charged with a potentially serious infraction, right? I mean, I'm not sure what they could have done to Kipnis if they'd actually found her in violation, but, you know, this is like a serious thing. It's your professional life at stake in some way, and you can't have a lawyer, and they won't even tell you what you're charged with until you agree to answer questions. I mean, that's just not due process in any kind of fair way that that we should recognize. Yeah, Emily, it seems to me that there are, there are a series of easy questions 
easy in the sense that one can get consensus on them fairly quickly. So should gender equality prevail on college campuses in the United States? No brainer. Yes. Should freedom of expression, you know, go untrammeled on especially on college campuses uh, in the U.S., yes. Uh, Should women who've been sexually assaulted get justice, you know, whether through the courts or campus tribunals? Absolutely, yes. And then suddenly the questions get almost impossibly hard to get consensus on. You know, whose norms prevail on a college campus generationally? Is it the students who've come to think of themselves as empowered consumers or, or especially adjunct professors who've come to see themselves as completely powerless in creating the common institutional lives of their universities? And then we come to really hard questions about feminism, which is where Kipnis's original essay, I think, inspired the outrage, because she was daring to ask whether or not feminism has given into essentially predetermined melodramatic categories of villainy and goodness, as opposed to accepting certain, you know, abidingly tragic facts about life in which real human beings don't divide up into villains and maidens, essentially. We all agree on the first two or three questions I asked, are legal norms going to help us with the harder questions? Well, that's a really great framing and a really good question. I mean, you know, I think one of the things that really interested me about Kipnis's first essay was this question of personal agency. I mean, she's asking a pretty deep question. If you consider yourself a feminist, and that means that you believe in equality and empowerment for women, do you really want to be saying that every time a student gets involved with a professor, that is automatically seen as something that's actionable. And, you know, she's asking, I think, whether some of the people on campus, some of the students who are seeing themselves as victims are doing a disservice by couching all of their sexual relationships in these kinds of terms. I like your villain maiden construct. You know, there's something that seems kind of retrograde about that to a lot of older women, I think. I mean, I'm curious on your, with your views on this, Dana, but to me it seems very unfamiliar. That said, I mean, I also found Kipnis's stance to sort of ignore the power imbalance between faculty and students to also be like kind of going too far in the other direction. (laughs) Um, I guess I keep searching for some kind of sensible middle ground here that recognizes that students can be vulnerable, especially the professors they're in or anyone they're in a supervisory relationship with, right? Like that seems, if you're having a class with someone, if you want to make a sexual or romantic relationship off limits, that seems like Maybe we could agree on that. It's this broader sort of imagining of victimhood, mostly for women, that I struggle with myself. Dana, what about you? Does that resonate for you at all? Yeah, I mean, I I think I guess I would have to place myself in your category generationally. It's funny because we're going to have another segment today with Rebecca Onion that destroys the entire idea that generations have coherent sets of views. Um, (laughs) Before you destroy the construct, let's use it a little. Right, exactly. (laughs) One last usage. I mean, I don't know if I would go so far. Uh, Laura Kipnis' first essay, which we talked about here on the show back when it came out in in March or February, whenever it was, we did a segment on it. And I think Julia, Steve, and I all more or less agreed that 
the basic rule that undergraduate students should not have romantic relationships with their professors that they're in a class with seems pretty solid and that we would all want our children to go to a college where that was the prevailing rule, if possible. You know, when you get into graduate students or a student who's not in that particular professor's class and they're all of age and they're consenting adults, I think it gets to be a more gray zone. There's also some melodrama going on in Laura Kipnis's own prose in that essay that we talked about. And there's a side of her that has this kind of, you know, it makes her very fun to read, but she has this very sassy kind of erotic way of writing in which she essentially sort of says, like, flaunting your erotic power is part of what being in college is about, and that there's a power differential that goes both ways, right? That it's not just the professor wielding power over the student, but vice versa as well. And, you know, that may that has a certain kind of, a, I don't know, maybe anecdotally for her kind of truth, but I don't think that should probably be something that we send our young women off to college feeling fine about, you know, flaunting their erotic power over much older <laughs> professors at the university. <laughs> Right. Especially, yes. Uh, as someone who works at a university, that does seem a little tricky to me, at least. It does seem like the reality, the lived reality, is in this gray area. And yet the conversation, in particular the legal conversation, tends to end up seeming so black and white and sort of unrelated to what people's actual experiences are. I find that, that part of it very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to me, however, that in her essay about the Title IX complaint being brought against her, Kipnis herself does begin to enact a melodrama. And in this instance, it's kind of a belated Kafka-esque melodrama in which the forces that are impinging upon her are impersonal, bureaucratic, and inexorable, and untransparent, all of which I'm sure is rooted in the truth of the situation, and in which she's the avatar of freedom of conscience and speech. And it is interesting to note that when people feel a degree of powerlessness, they can't be asked to humanize the thing that they feel they're being uh, entrapped by. And in fact, it's a defense of the mind to produce melodramatic categories in order to uh, make public the misadventure that you're being forced to go through. So I understand why a young woman who feels seriously victimized by a more powerful older man might begin to think received melodramatic categories. And I think, and I regard Kipnis as a first-class writer, a writer of almost total bravura and control. But even in that essay, she does start to think melodramatically. True. I mean, I think when the seems to become Kafkaesque, it's pretty hard not to feel that way, right? Like, that's different from a person. No, I, well, no, that's, that's true, but a professor represents the power of an institution. I mean, I, it's a complex subject because it has to do with the use of rhetoric and style of rhetoric. You know, a good rhetorician always makes their case powerfully, and I just thought it was, anyway, I'm just not... No, no, I think you're this is that Laura Kipnis is the perfect person to have had this happen to because it's so useful to her rhetorically to have this uh, grievance of her own that she can now discuss. I will say, though, I have heard this kind of befuddlement and distress about these internal disciplinary processes from a lot of people, and not just people who've been accused. I think complainants who come forward can find the whole thing bewildering and maze-like, too. And part of what I think the schools need to grapple with is that if they are going to be seriously investigating 
you know, infractions. I mean, this is just like a speech about an essay, but especially when we're starting to talk about rape allegations, you can't do that without lawyers and some sense of professionally trained hearing panelists and investigators. I just don't think so. I think these sort of very informal processes that schools have set up in secret are just not going to be able to bear the weight of what's being asked of them. And so to me, one of the more promising developments is the school and this is true of Columbia, it's true of Harvard Law School, where they've started to say to the accused and the accuser, okay, you can bring a lawyer, and if you can't afford one, we'll help you find one. Harvard Law School has started to hire retired judges to hear these cases. I mean, you know, if we're going to be essentially trying sexual harassment and and sexual assault cases, then we probably need to have to be a more professionalized process. If only also, Emily, I was going to add, because this must really add up for the the tuition-paying parent. I mean, as a future tuition payer, I was thinking, what if there's some kind of huge legal flap and, you know, lawyers have to be flown in for some kind of pointless kangaroo court, you know, and it's going on to my dime as <laughs> a tuition right. payer. It just seems like an absurd use of campus resources. Well, this one really did. And, you know, the thing that is depressing to me about that point is that there's so much work to be done on the prevention front, right? I mean, we don't really want a situation in which students or, you know, anyone in a university says essentially, like, I don't want anything to do with sexual assault prevention because that's, like, a societal problem. And I do hear this from the survivor activists I talk to. Like, that's a societal problem. I don't want anyone lecturing me about getting super drunk and going to a frat party. But then afterward, I want the college adjudication process to kick in if something bad happens. If that's the way we set this up, if that's the framework, all the money is going to be spent on a few hotly contested cases. And the resources are not going to go into making the school a better climate for everybody where, you know, you don't, you have fewer of the kinds of disputed moments that lead to these cases that then get all this ink spilled and all this attention devoted to them. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. What a freaking delight to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Always super fun to talk to you guys. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Dana Stevens. What do we have? This week, the Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Braintree, the payment solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Munchery. I don't know what Munchery is, but that is a great company name. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical, and you can now add a similar experience to your own app. Braintree has excellent customer service and simple integration to get you ready to receive payments quickly. And they also have continuous customer support and fast payouts, so you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billionth. Steve, are you ready to make your billionth dollar? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to get to my hundredth first. (laughs) Braintree gives you support for all payment types your customers might want. They accept PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single integration platform. To learn more about Braintree and to get your first $50,000 in transactions without any fees, you can go to braintreepayments.com slash culture. Back to you, Steve. All right, Dana. Thanks a lot. Moving on. In real life, I find generational arguments infuriating. So writes Slate's history writer, Rebecca Onion, in Eon Magazine. She goes on to say, overly schematized and ridiculously reductive generation theory is a simplistic way of thinking about the relationship between individual society and history. Rebecca Onion, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. 
Uh, I'm I'm especially excited to have you here for a bunch of different reasons, one of which is I think this essay is terrific, truly terrific, especially as it gets into the history of the concept of generations, but also because I'm trying to make use of the concept of generations in my own book, and I'm suspicious of them, but not nearly as suspicious as you are. In fact, you've shaken me of my belief that it may be a meaningful category at all. Did you mean to do that? Uh, you know, before I came on here, I was trying to predict in my mind what you would think of this whole argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, I couldn't tell which way curmudgeonliness would swing on this. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean to ruin your scheme. The mysterious pendulum of curmudgeonliness. Yeah, exactly. I, I, love, that, I love that we can't reduce cohorts to generations, but we can reduce Stephen Metcalf to one adjective. Oh, oh no. Oh, boo-hoo. All right, let's get away from me and into your fantastically interesting argument. Uh, why are generations A, so popular and B, so vacuous? Well, I think obviously they're popular because it is really exciting to be able to have big explanations for things that are confusing. (laughs) And what is more confusing than social change? And I think I make this comparison in the article, but there's an attractiveness to it that to me reminds me of the way that people like to think about horoscopes and trying to understand their own responses to their own lives. But I think a lot about the difference between the way that academics think about things and the way that People like to explain things sort of in popular discussion. And to me, this generations thing is like a huge, like a paradigmatic example of the difference between the two approaches. Because, you know, as I sort of thought before writing this piece, and then I found as I was looking further into the way that sociologists and historians have approached the problem of generations, it is indeed true that those people who write about generations sort of professionally, to them, it's vacuous, as you say, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. as a concept. And I think it's just because, you know, the closer you look at any giant problem, like, again, the problem of social change, the more it becomes clear that there is no way to explain it with one explanation. But is it possible that one can call upon certain inherently vacuous categories like generations, decades, centuries, simply as a way of ordering the slurry of experience, which is just too vast and too confused and too run together, to think about conceptually without organizing principles, even though those principles might be arbitrary, and later you may need to subtleize them or nuance them. Does that hold any weight with you? Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I wouldn't be a person who wrote a dissertation in in an American studies department without sort of believing that. Um, You know, I think you can hold those two ideas in your mind at the same time. You can say, you know, I don't really think this is a perfect way of understanding the world, but I'm going to try and see. Um, and then maybe in its in the imperfections of it, you know, the things that sort of slide out of your grasp, there's something telling by saying, oh, well, you know, in the 1970s, people were pessimistic, for example, to, to make like a giant decade pronouncement. <laughs> and then if you were to look at the 1970s and find, you know, examples that didn't fit that paradigm, then that is actually interesting to mm-hmm. me. Rebecca, I'm so glad and so relieved that you wrote this because I've always hated as a media meme any mention of the generations, especially, you know, people that are currently alive. It's one thing to sort of talk about, you know, history in terms of generations because those people's lives have occurred in history and we can look at how they mapped out, right, and with cultural trends of the time. But people sort of naming what generation they're in and then especially when there was this rash of whiny articles like there's no name for my generation because I wasn't born in some kind of demographic spike or something like that. I just always find it, as you say, almost astrology-like in its absolute arbitrariness, including how do you group a generation, right? I mean, who decided that baby boomers begin and end here and Gen Xers start there and millennials are this and that? And all of that stuff has always seemed to me 
fairly bogus, even though it might lead to some interesting discussion of some other cultural trend that, in fact, does impact that people in that age group. The, the way of framing it has just always grated on me. So I was very grateful. And I was particularly interested when you start looking back at the history of essentially the intellectual history of dividing people into generations by this, this pair of writers, Strauss and Howe, who seem like a combination of astrologers, life consultants, right, and, and kind of history theorizers, and who became very popular, I guess, um, among the almost became sort of like corporate consultant advisors. I wanted you to talk about how they sort of mythologize and and archetypize the notion of generationality. Yes, they make a lot of money, although I guess I should say that there's, um, you know, one of them is has passed away. So there's only one, but the two of them made a lot of money. And now the one who's left makes a lot of money, sort of consulting for universities and companies, people who have a lot of money and want to try to figure out how to reach mostly young people, I think. (laughs) Although there are, you know, there is some advantage in trying to reach people in the older cohorts. But yeah, there's a what I found interesting in sort of looking into their because their scheme, which is on the face of it, just confusing and to the point of sort of like ridiculous to the point of laughability, which is the idea that there are particular kinds of people that follow each other through history. That there are cycles, right? That there are repeating cycles of generations. Yes, there are repeating cycles of um, there's groups of heroes, artists, prophets, and nomads that sort of cycle predictably throughout history and that each group archetype triggers the next one to come so that whatever a group of heroes does in history creates, their children will inevitably become artists (laughs) because they'll be trying to correct the way that their parents did it. So by that model, for example, the greatest generation, those who fought in the world war would be heroes. And then the next generation following them rebelling against their values would be artists like the beatniks and hippies. Is that the idea? Yes. And then you have the boomers who are prophets because they're sort of having transcendental awakenings all over the place (laughs) Um, and perceive themselves as sort of like a vanguard. And then you have Gen X being nomad, sort of like lost or a little bit, you know, alienated. And then that's supposed to repeat itself all over again. So we we're <laughs> so our children that. will be heroes, Steve. Our children <laughs> will rise. Look, of course, this is this is this is so much astrological nonsense. But what what I loved most about the piece is is your survey of of really three figures who've written seriously about generations, Carl Mannheim, who really introduced the concept into sociology. And then I believe his name is Norman Ryder, is that right, who wrote a seminal essay on the concept of cohorts and generations. And then Wall, who wrote about it relative to World War One. And, and though each of them is skeptical about the concept, they all acknowledge that, of course, there's an endless flow of new babies into the world that goes, you know, relatively undemarcated um, until there's a kind of wounding effect of a historical event. So World War I or the American Revolution or the Vietnam War takes a birth cohort and gives them a defining experience that they then embrace in a self-conscious way. And that makes a generation. Now, one always has to add quickly that that's not universal among the people who were born within that four or five, three to five year span. And that the student protesting at Berkeley is not the same thing as a 19-year-old you know, unemployed black male in Detroit in 1968. Nonetheless, it's not the same thing as a vacuous concept. Yes. And actually, the Wool book you referred to is a 1979 book, Generation of 1914. It's by historian Robert Wool. And I found the way that he approached it probably the most sort of like helpful and fruitful for me in trying to understand both the inherent problems with that 
idea of like the wounding event <laughs> um, or sort of the organizing event and the possible sort of helpfulness of it. Um, so, you know, he's writing about people who perceive themselves as having this shared experience and perceived their own sort of interests, their intellectual interests and the themes that they were interested in talking about as coming from that event. But then also within those people, he identifies cohorts, <laughs> um, you know, people who are a little bit older when they went to war um, and a little more sort of like established in their careers. And I'm speaking here of British soldiers who went to World War One when World War One was still perceived as like a grand adventure, or like a glorious event. <laughs> you know, Wolf finds that those people had a different experience than the soldiers who went later on in the war, when they went straight from school, and they weren't established in their careers. And they, they basically sort of lost everything <laughs> from mm-hmm. this experience. And so, you know, uh, later on, those groups are sort of lumped together. But Wall is saying, like, let me look at it. You know, there is this traumatic event that is happening to two groups of British elites. That's pretty close together <laughs> when it comes to cohorts. But because it happened to them at different points in their life, it happened in different ways. What I like, Rebecca, about about your piece is that, you know, without completely axing the idea that, you know, dividing historical chunks of time into sort of discrete units in order to make sense of them is a thing that historians and people in general should do. You don't get rid of that entirely. But I think that you really kind of do take an axe to the the popular way in the media that this this question is settled. And just that talking about generations and the influence of millennials versus the, you know, the, it's sort of creating categories to pit against each other in a way that makes for some pretty lib journalism. And I'm really glad you called that out. Woohoo. Kill it. (laughs) Kill generations. Just kidding. Let's talk about cohorts and not generations is my ultimate argument, I think. Uh, All right. Well, this is such an amazingly uh, fertile topic. I wish we could go on and on, but we can't. Rebecca Onion, who writes about history for Slate, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Your essay is Against Generations in Aeon Magazine. You can find it online and we'll link to it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Dana. Stevens, what do we have? Our second sponsor is the car company Volvo, which I have a special affection for because I once wrapped my parents' Volvo around a telephone pole in high school (laughs) (laughs) and survived. It's a very safe car. That's why they had it. Steve, you were also saying something about Volvos earlier, that Stanley Fish wrote about Volvos as the, the academic car par excellence. Yeah, Dana, if I remember correctly, he did. He wrote an essay about why academics tend to own, especially in the humanities, tend to own Volvos and not BMWs. And he said that was arguing that that there are a bunch of effective associations with the Volvo as an ultimately sensible and unostentatious vehicle to own. Um, but what I mean, where the Volvo refutes Stanley Fish is that if you actually put it through a set of empirical tests as to its safety and reliability, it uh, passes them with flying colors and better than other cars. So I've always admired Volvos. I wish I owned one. Yeah, I, I love the shape of the old Volvos, at least in the days that I was driving and wrecking them. <laughs> they have a beautiful, simple shape. <laughs> and I'm not a car person, as you can tell from the story. I love this is the first thing we've ever shilled for that saved one of our lives. <laughs> That's true. What could be a stronger endorsement than that? There would be no me here on the mic right now were it not for this Swedish car company. So, Stephen, it's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. This is the Wonder of Summer event at Volvo. You can go to volvocars.com slash us or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. 
Back to you, Steve. Thanks, Dana. All right, moving on. Carl Wilson is Slate's music critic and a treasured guest of this program. He joins us to talk about the guitarist and songwriter Jim O'Rourke. Carl, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Many things about this piece interested me, uh, not the least of which is the unique evolution of O'Rourke as a talent. He's a multi-instrumentalist and arranger, uh, a music producer um, from Chicago who's worked with most prominently, I suppose, Wilco. He's revived the reputa- helped revive the reputation of uh, the wonderful guitarist and innovator John Fahey. But he himself is also a, a singer-songwriter of a kind. What I loved about the piece, Carl, is that in addition to being a meditation on what this one individual's career has meant, it's a meditation on what it is to write songs. Tell us a little bit about O'Rourke and what you find in his music, and we'll get into the deeper issue uh, after that. Well, one of the things that's interesting about O'Rourke is that he trained as a composer in a kind of, you know, academically avant-garde kind of way and has that has that kind of global cosmopolitan perspective. And really, for the first long while in his career, he, was, he sort of started early. He was still in university when he started playing around in Chicago. He was kind of a stubbornly avant-garde figure. He was doing a lot of free improvisation. He was composing tape pieces and drone pieces and collages and all of the kind of things in, in that world. And so when he moved sort of closer to the regular indie rock world, he brought a certain kind of sound palette and world of, of possibilities to working with other people Um Besides Wilco, he was a member of Sonic Youth for a while, um, and he also worked with people like Smog and Stereolab, um, and that was and and his engineering skills and that kind of thing were, were an important part of his career. And it was kind of late in that whole process that he actually turned to writing songs, as anybody would recognize them. And to me, that's what's kind of fascinating about his approach. It turned out that he was kind of a wonderful songwriter and that he approached things with this kind of or- large orchestral palette. And I think that he always saw songs in some ways from a certain amount of remove, so that instead of just treating songs as a vehicle for pure self-expression, in some ways he has a kind of manipulative and ironic relationship to song form. And that enables him to bring in elements of genres that in a lot of ways were kind of ruled out as cheesy and outdated and a lot of sort of 70s references and 80s references that at the time, you know, this is kind of the late 90s, all of these things were very uncool, but somehow by bringing this more objective eye to the singer-songwriter form, he was kind of able to redeem that material in his own way. Why don't we, before we go any further, Carl, why don't you pick out a song from the new, his latest record, Simple Songs, and let's, uh, let's listen to it. Sure. Um, well, you might as well um, begin from the opening track, Friends with Benefits. Nice to see you once again. Been a long time, my friend, since you crossed my mind at all. There's no need to be the bad. Yeah, you know, Carl, listening to this album, I heard a lot of the influences that you talked about and this kind of the, the rich orchestration of these kind of psychedelic groups and like the Van Dyke Parks arrangements for, for the Beach Boys and things like that. But I also heard 
And this, and the trajectory that you described for Jim O'Rourke reminds me a little bit of this figure, something like Arthur Russell, you know, someone who sort of in, who straddles genres and who started off in kind of classical avant-garde realms and then moved into pop and therefore brings all of this richness of other kinds of musics into the, into the music that he's making. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. You know, and somebody like Russell was just sort of in the very early stages of being rediscovered when when O'Rourke was originally doing this kind of work. And so in some ways, yeah, that's, that's a sensibility that had, had gotten lost along the way. And both of them, I guess, also sort of remained permanently underground figures. I mean, in Russell's case, because he died so young. But did Jim O'Rourke ever have a hit? No. I mean, yeah, those couple of, of late 90s, early 2000s albums were the closest that he got. But actually, most of the way his sensibility reached people was through other people. And he's kind of a famously stubborn and difficult character. And part of his reaction to the peak of his success in the mid-2000s was to pick up and move to Tokyo um, and, and sort of leave the music world almost altogether. He's, you know, he's put out very difficult to find things up until now while he's been there. Including an all-instrumental album, you said, with his last one, right? A half-hour-long instrumental piece, which sounds like he's kind of moving back to classical or avant-garde roots there. Yeah, and that album involved him playing every instrument on it, because he moved to Tokyo and actually didn't know anybody that he could play with. He mostly knew sort of Japanese noise musicians. And so, and so he spent, you know, the famous thing about that album, The Visitor, that the anecdote is always that he spent six months learning to play the trombone so he could play a 10-second trombone part. <laughs> I love that. I love the absolute futility and, and just absurd expenditure of, of energy on, in that fact. It's great. So, Carl, you know, it seems to me the hallmark of the singer-songwriter is is really, well, it's really both part of the label. It's, it's first, or taking the second one first, it's a commitment to the craft of writing a song as a structured thing. In other words, there's a received structure to most pop songs uh, within which there's an enormous range of expressive possibilities. And the challenge in some ways is taking the narrowly received thing like the sonnet form or a, you know, five act tragedy or, you know, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, chorus, end or whatever, and just doing something interesting within it. Um, and then the, and then the second, you know, for singer songwriters that the singer has a totally idiosyncratic personal style that comes through the singing through the voice. He's work is playing with both of these things, as you say, with a degree of detachment, almost clinical detachment in a way. Is it possible to do these things with clinical detachment? Doesn't it undermine the whole project uh, to take undertake them with irony? Well, I think that that's one of the questions that these albums definitely raise. And a lot a lot of the reference point that I detect in what O'Rourke is doing is to the sort of mid-70s when we were in a kind of a post-60s idealization of music's role in the world, kind of the hangover of all of that, where there were all kinds of singer-songwriters who were falling somewhere between that kind of earnest self-expression model and the sort of formalist model. So those two things that you're talking about, and particularly around Los Angeles and Laurel Canyon, and but also just sort of in the studios of Los Angeles, there was a particular crop of people like Randy Newman and Harry Nilsson and others who were kind of taking that kind of bent and warped model of songwriting and both stretching the formal considerations and stretching the the question of what kind of voice you could speak in and whether you had to speak in your own voice. And 
in some ways, they were referring back to a pre-singer-songwriter mode, right, where it had been that the positions of songwriter and singer were actually kind of radically separate pre-Beatles and pre-Dylan. And so in, in coming back at those things, the question of whether those pieces can fit together in some different way is the interesting thing. And I think we're kind of in that kind of moment now because we're kind of at a time when for the past decade plus what's dominated pop music and out of Nashville as well has kind of been a more kind of song factory style of music production where the where the artist plays a kind of tertiary role in the creation of the song itself and so this kind of probing at the question of how those things fit together it seems kind of of the moment to me is right now too one thing I would add to that, Carl, just in answer to Steve's question about the ironic detachment, I mean, you, you do hear some, I don't know, I guess you would call it ironic, but you definitely hear formalism in the construction of these songs and the instrumentation and like lots of referentiality and what I consider really beautiful referentiality because I like Harry Nilsson and Van Dyke Parks and all the stuff he's referencing. But the lyrics, which are from what I've understood of them so far, are quite good. Are They do, I think, have some, some personal expression, whether it's Jim O'Rourke who's speaking or a character he's writing for, I don't know. But it seems like a thing that he often does lyrically that I find really interesting and moving is to set up an expectation with one line and then debunk it with the next. In other words, to sort of start embarking on a love song cliche or some other sort of pop cliche and then walk it back with the following line, like the very first two lyrics of the song we heard, Friends with Benefits, the first song in the album, which go, nice to see you once again. Been a long time, my friend, since you crossed my mind at all. (laughs) There's almost like a Dylan-esque kind of passive aggressiveness in that lyric that I love. Um, All right. Well, before we end the segment, Carl, let's pick one more song and we'll go out on that. Yeah, why don't, why don't we play part of last year, which is, is kind of part of the sort of three-song arc that I think brings the album to a sort of climax in denouement. I guess the final thing to say, too, is is that I think that um, whether through O'Rourke's delayed influence or not, that, that this kind of distanced and, and, and curious approach to the sort of singer-songwriter form is also something that you're seeing cropping up a lot in particular sort of indie rock circles right now. And so one of the things that O'Rourke's return does is kind of remind us to keep our ears tuned for the strains of this um, in, as, we, as we start hearing more new music. All right. Well, the piece is called The Musical Omnivore's Dilemma. It's on Slate.com. It's by Carl Wilson, the music critic of Slate. Carl, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And Carl, you're going to stick around and endorse, yes? Yes, sir. Excellent. All right, wait a second. Before we go any further, though, we have a third sponsor, our other other sponsor, Dana. What do we got? Steve, this is a sponsor that I know you love to talk about because you actually use them. It's Harry's Razors. Harry's, my old friend. Are you feeling your smooth cheeks right now at the mention of their name? <laughs> oh, Dana, you... I know you far too well, right? <laughs> <laughs> you do. You know me far too well. Well, um, you're getting out a credit card and rubbing it across your cheeks like in the old ad. Are you... Are you tempting me into an HR violation here, Dana Stevens? <laughs> Let's not work blue here. Um, I yeah no look. The reason I love Harry's is is it, of course I use the product and I'm completely utterly satisfied with it. But also secondly, it's a blow against my bet noir, otherwise known as Alagopoli. 
Um, because there was obviously a oligopolistic control over the razor industry, which is why you basically you had to go register with the nanny state in order to get permission to <laughs> unlock the plexiglass container behind which were the you know precious, precious razors at your drugstore or supermarket, which should tell you that normally free-thinking libertarian people felt perfectly at liberty stealing them from these places because the price was so arbitrarily high. Anyway, so this horrible cycle of crime and corporate theft has been finally broken by Harry's. They've broken through this uh, uh, supply stranglehold, and now you can order razors online, click of the button, you basically join up, they take your info, credit card info, and then in the mail regularly come the precise amount of fresh, brand new, rationally priced razors, and your cheeks need never be rough again, and your conscience may be equally smooth and clean. (laughs) And as it happens, Steve, this would not be a Father's Day gift for you, because you obviously already have and enjoy Harry's, but they are offering a Father's Day offer right now. If you want to give your dad or a dad in your life this incredible, smooth-cheeked treat, Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off your Father's Day set with the code CULTURE. That's right. Just in time for Father's Day, Harry's is giving listeners to the show $5 off their Father's Day purchase with the code CULTURE. That's harrys.com, and enter the coupon code CULTURE at checkout for $5 off. Harry's, a shave good enough to give. Dana, Mm -hmm. I thought I knew everything about you, but I just learned something new. What's that? You pronounce it coupon. (laughs) Instead of coupon? Coupon. It's a coupon. Not a coup- I <laughs> Is mean, that a regional thing? I never thought about that. Different. It's, it's it must be a regional thing, but it's adorable. I love it. Coupon. <laughs> cute, cute pun. Uh, all right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we do exactly that. We endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? So the movie San Andreas opened last week, which is a big, dumb disaster movie about the West Coast essentially becoming an island because of the worst earthquake in American history. Um, I happen to love it because I like big, dumb disaster movies, but I didn't get to review it because of various scheduling conflicts and there were other things to write on. And so my sole attempt to address the joy of seeing San Andreas was a tweet in which I said that I wished <laughs> I wished San Andreas were titled When the Rock is Your Dad because Dwayne The Rock Johnson plays the dad in the movie who saves his daughter and, you know, the world and most of San Francisco. Anyway, this silly tweet about wishing that there there was a movie called When the Rock is Your Dad that had a theme song with the same title has now turned into an actual song because uh, the, the lyrics that I wrote for it, the goofy little lyrics that I emailed to um, Chris Wade, who for years was an audio and video producer at Slate and produced my podcast, the uh, the spoiler special for many years, has now been turned into a song because Chris Wade is a genius. So he sat down with GarageBand and some instruments and made up a melody for my ridiculous San Andreas song lyric, and you can find it on YouTube. So we'll put a link to that on the show page. Oh, excellent. Carl, what do you have? I want to endorse a new podcast, which is by um, Starley Kine, who for years was a member of the This American Life team. And the podcast is called Mystery Show. And the premise of it, as near as I can describe, is kind of as if a podcast were started the way that a 10-year-old starts a detective agency. (laughs) (laughs) Kine is kind of soliciting from, I think, an extended circle of friends problems and mysteries and questions that they can't solve in their own lives. And specifically, the rule, I think, is that it can't be solved by Googling it. Um, And so you sort of follow her along the chain of these investigations. The second episode just came out, and uh, it centers around a writer friend of hers whose mystery is that 
Britney Spears was once photographed carrying her book, and she wants to know. And it was a book that wasn't particularly successful when it came out, and she wants to know whether Britney Spears actually read it and what, how she got it and whether she liked it. Um, and what kind goes through to do that is this extraordinary set of set of inquiries down all kinds of dead ends. Kind has this ability that's amazing, and it's, it's really something to hear in a podcast, which is to speak to strangers and within about 30 seconds be talking to these strangers about intimate things in their lives. The absolute highlight of the most recent episode is a conversation he has with a Ticketmaster sales agent on the phone trying to find out if there's a way when she goes to see Britney Spears in Las Vegas whether she can actually talk to her. And they end up having this heart-to-heart conversation about inspirations and about his mother and all these. So it keeps going off on these tangents because of her social skills, basically, um, that make it something richer than the kind of gimmicky or playful premise of the whole thing. And I'm really curious to see where this, the, the thing evolves to as it goes. God, it sounds amazing. And what's the name of it again? It's called Mystery Show. When I was in Toronto, I went to go see something called Trampoline Hall that as it turns out, our own Carl Wilson is the bouncer for. And if you show up and you're unruly or dressed <laughs> even slightly wrong, he will fuck you up so bad and so quick, you won't know what hit you. But that's only part of what enticed me to a uh, trampoline hall. It's actually, it's a moth that hasn't been discovered and hyped and blown, you know, sky high in the imagination, collective imaginations of, of young yuppiedom. It's a, basically... Carl, correct me if, if I'm wrong. Essentially what it is is a kind of semi-mock lecture series in which people, three people get up on a monthly basis and they uh, deliver a lecture on a subject they are absolutely unqualified to speak about. And I guess they can prep in whatever the way they want. They can br- bring whatever degree of irony they want to it. But it results in a kind of wonderful semi-spontaneous theater of the absurd. And its host is this almost preposterously quick-witted gentleman whose name I've forgotten. Misha Globerman. Yeah, he's terrific. It's terrific. And when I went, I was swooning with delight at the whole thing. Um, not the least the, the fucking up that I received at the hands of, of, of Carl Wilson. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but also, it's just at that level, it's shimmering at that perfect level of sort of discovery and obscurity. I mean, clearly people in Toronto... It's been around for quite a while. It's sort of a semi-institution there, but it hasn't been blown out on um, public radio. And so it is its own thing. It's both kind of cozy, and yet it has that kind of quivery excitement of something that's um, more than one's own personal discovery. And I loved it. So if you're ever in Toronto, go see it. And if you're an, an aspiring public radio producer, exploit it and destroy it. That's my that's my endorsement. <laughs> that's incredible, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> it really was fun. It was it was awesome to go to. People should seek it out and and discover it. All right. Well, that's our show. Um, Carl, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, uh, Dana. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Emily Bazelon, Rebecca Onion, Carl Wilson, and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. 
Sometimes you feel like losing hope Your car goes off a cliff You're clinging by a thread to life But you don't have to worry if A captain hovers into sight A raised fire rescue squad And the man at the controls is built Like a Greek or Roman gal When the rock is your dad 